In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Sadness and struggle are something you cannot avoid. We will all experience this in our lifetime. Accept this as a truth. How one responds to these periods will vary by the individual. That is what makes each one of us special and unique. The question we all have is, when does a normal emotion become severe enough to require an intervention? On today's podcast, depression. Good afternoon, Kelly, Roger. Good afternoon. Yeah, I said good afternoon, not good morning. Yet we are here on a, on a beautiful Saturday, uh, but we all had the opportunity to sleep in, go about our morning routine because Kelly had sports this morning. Did not need a Monster Energy drink today. Mm-mm. Not at all. Nope. What'd you have? Uh, soccer practice? Basketball, game? soccer. Game or practice? Just practice. Just practice. Yes. That's boring then. Yeah. All right. Roger, you do anything fun? Drove my kid to wrestling practice, came here, read for this podcast, went back, picked him up, took him home, came back here, got a latte. Again, boring. boring. <laughs> it is beautiful outside. It is nice. Uh, I, had a, I had a friend stop by this morning, uh, college buddy, um, lots of uh, time that I've seen him recently because that I've moved back. So he kind of sent me a message this morning, said, are you around? going to go see my folks. I'll hang out for an hour, brought the kids over. Nice seeing Kazen running around, chasing after his son, who's three and a half years old. Just good to have activity happening. And I think we're touching on some things that we all have in our lives, which is being active, being social. But there were probably moments in each of our lives where, we went through periods where maybe we were sad uh, or possibly depressed. Kelly, you shared a story. Absolutely. I went through, um, I went through a period of my life and probably my you know, early 20s. And we talked about this before. I was diagnosed within 15 minutes um, with um, you know, severe depression. And um, yeah, I think as, as I went through that, I realized more and more that that's not what it actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that now, uh, I don't know that everybody recognizes that or has the ability to, but I think you just sometimes look at it. So this brings up a question then, because I had been talking to this about people. They had asked me about that time cause they heard it on the podcast mm-hmm. and then they actually were asking about, well, how do you know? How do you know? So this term depression gets kind of thrown around. In in our last podcast, I had said it's almost like become a badge of honor to, you know, bring this up and talk about it, which I'm okay with people talking about. I think that's healthy. Mm-hmm. But with this badge of honor, and then they were just like, well, how did you know? I have a, you know, a very interesting story that shaped the way that I think about depression uh, as a psychologist. When I was working in the school, and this is when Kelly, you and I were working together, mm-hmm. And I was a doctoral student. I'm going to say I was a third or fourth year doctoral student. I was working in a school full time, going through my doctoral program. 
And I would work with some of the kids who were really struggling. And there was one particular girl who I'll never forget. She's embedded in my memory. Her parents asked if I could, um, you know, meet with her and talk to her. They're really concerned that uh, she presents with all the signs and symptoms of depression. They tried her on various psychiatric medications. They um, had her see different therapists, all with no success. And just from me being in the school and getting to know her a little bit, they said that I've developed a relationship and uh, wanted to see if I could just, you know, meet with her. So I did, and I think I dedicated maybe an entire semester in, like, trying to provide, like, some form of cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. And I was learning it at the time, mm. right? Um, I, you know, had some sense of, some expertise in it. I was doing it in, in, in practicum placements, and I was in a specific cognitive behavioral treatment uh, specialty in my doctoral program. So I thought this was a great opportunity to try to apply it to a 14-year-old girl who was clearly experiencing depression. So if you would administer a, like a Beck depression inventory or another measure of depression, it would come out, you know, on the severe end. So you were, you were in absolute agreement with any diagnosis that she previously had, that she was depressed, severely depressed. In the modern way of, of looking at psychological disorders or psychiatric disorders, she would meet every criteria mm -hmm. for depression. And, I worked with her for a while from doing things like behavioral activation, getting, getting her to self-monitor her ways of thinking and responding to her social world, um, attempting to like understand things in context, get her to challenge different things, do some experiments. And then one day she sat down. I'll never forget this. She looked at me. She goes, why are you trying so hard? And I said, what do you mean? like, you're trying so hard for me to not feel this way. Did you ever think that you and everybody else, that you're the problem? Wow. Hmm. And, I, and my curiosity peaked up and I said, well, what do you mean? I have no problem being depressed. In fact, I prefer it. And this was new to me in my thinking at the time. I was in my mid-20s, right? So... Uh, I haven't like, no way did I mature or evolve to the point where I, you know, where I am now. So at the time to have a 14 year old talk like this, it was new, right? And it was not how you're trained as a psychologist or what we're exposed to in popular culture. And she said to me, um, and first of all, she was an artist, very artistic. She was a writer. Um, she wrote poetry mm -hmm. and she told me, the world is really painful. And who would I be to deny that pain? And who are you to deny me of that privilege? Everyone else has more of a problem with how I feel, how I think, and how I act than I do. And I prefer to feel connected to the pain of the society and the culture, the people that we live in. It fuels my art. And I think to deny the pain and what it means to be human would be the problem. That's incredible insight. I was going to say the same thing for a 14-year-old. So how'd you respond? Silent, right? Fla flabbergasted. Yeah. Um, because where you're coming from, 
everybody's supposed to be happy. Get them out of this period. It, see, it wasn't even the fact that like the goal is to be happy, right? You were in problem solving mode is really what it was, right? Definitely in problem solving mode. Yeah. And as a CBT therapist, that's where you're trained. Like what you're feeling was a disorder or a symptom yeah. and you needed to treat it. Mm. And so she shifted the way that I thought about depression, not as a symptom of a, of a disease, but um, of an experience and uh, with a function to it a reason, a purpose, and somehow it's there to potentially even be a partner for us. So she was somebody who felt very disconnected from other 14-year-olds her age. So was, were there suicidal ideations? Were there, you know what I mean? Like, so how, how did the parents not see that they actually had almost a kind of a prodigy uh, who was connected or... I, I mean, I understand as a parent, you don't always, you don't want to see your child sad, but if she's doing, if she's being productive and she was a decent student and she was taking actions, I just am curious what prompted them to want to, you know. Her writings were, were very dark. Okay. I think she did self-injure or cut, if, I, right. if I can recall. Um, social isolation, you know, sadness. Like there was a lot that would, concern um parents and she was much different right that her parents were from what i recall very practical people right and uh really couldn't understand what it to what it must be like to to be her and also it took a while for her to verbalize it with me i mean she went along with it for a while i think until she got to a point where she could trust me and she could say what she said and at, at some point I completely shifted the way that I worked with her we continued to meet and what we ended up doing was we talked about experiencing these emotions as a gift a gift to help her be able to understand other people at a deep level to be able to contribute to her art um and it got me into, you know, reading different ways of like thinking about what it means to be human, to move away from the medical model of the time. And I came across something called uh, depressive realism. And this what does that mean? Yeah, it, it's this idea that um, to be depressed is a much, in, in context, is you're much more connected to the reality of being human. And in fact, it's like exactly what she was telling me, that um, the only way to not experience those emotions intensely, you'd have to deny the reality of living. So turn on the news at any given moment. Mm -hmm. there's, there's war, you know, there's death, there's rape, there's illness, there's pain. To live, to live is painful, right? right? And so in order to actually feel good or to live really well, in some aspect means we'd have to deny that reality. Therefore, in her world, you know, we were the problem. So she walks down the hall, sees somebody bullied, for example. She felt that person's pain. Mm. While another person could just, ah, it's not me, and keep walking. So who's the problem there, you know? Is it the person walking down the hall who can just shrug their shoulders and move on? Or is it someone like her? Mm -hmm. 
And so that changed the way that I viewed depression. And it helped me not only begin to um, read more about philosophy, but also to get more connected to what's called the acceptance-based movement in my own field. And just to make, just to make that as, uh, you know, as simple for our listening audience as possible, it's that idea that if we have a more non-judgmental stance and just ex- acceptance of our experience, then we're, it's much easier to regulate that. So the best way for me to describe this girl, she was sad, not depressed. And she was sad based on legitimate, legitimate reasons to be sad. She was sad about what it was to live in modern society, what she saw in her school, what she saw in her community, what she read about. You know, life was dark. It was sad. And if she allowed it to be there and understood it and tried to find a way to contribute to this world and create a life worth living for herself, she was fine. If you judged it and it was a symptom of a disease and there's something wrong with her and she wasn't allowed to feel that way or it should be numbed out somehow with a pharmaceutical or somehow she's disordered, well, then she got much, much worse. Mm -hmm. So when we embraced it and we accepted it, in my opinion, she didn't meet criteria for clinical depression. But if you expected her to be a real social outgoing person, like another 14-year-old, well, that's the problem. You know, expecting her to be someone different than what she is obviously could influence depression. But so. what at what point is there? So there's that's that normal kind of... Um, let's talk about normal sadness. Yeah, I was just going to say yeah. normal sadness versus pathological, right? Okay, let's just start with normal sadness. Um, can you feel sad most of the day for a two-week, three-week period of time in your life. Yes. Yeah. Right? I, I have. At the time, though, you didn't, I didn't know that. That, 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 that. It was It was for about two, three weeks, and that's why people, friends, and my parents, my mom particularly, were like, you better, you know, seek help. So I did. And let's identify the things that may have precipitated it. Like, so for you to, let's call it getting into a rut, where you are sad most of the day, for a two-week period, a three-week period, a four-week period. Um, let's say maybe it's interfering with your ability to sleep or to work. Maybe you're isolating. And when you think about your future, you're a little bit more hopeless. Maybe there's some fatigue. What are the things that would you know, participate, precipitate it? Well, bad, um, bad relationships. Are you in a, in a bad relationship? It might be a loss. Um, you might have some death in the family, a, yeah. friend, a close friend that passes away. What else, Sean? Um, your career not going in the direction you may have wanted it to, mm-hmm. or not as quickly as you originally anticipated. You're not succeeding in school if you're if you're, if you're at college or if you're a little older. You perhaps you're not succeeding like you thought you were going to. Mm-hmm. That Moving idea- away from friends and not having a community you can reach out to and socialize with. And that idea of uh, I think it's the term I think is relative depravity. Big fish, small pond. We talk about how. You could be this big fish at, say, the high school you went to, and you suddenly go out into the world, and that same skill set you realize is not, it's not working, and yeah. you suddenly realize that. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I felt that. I remember when I went to university, I was one of many. Nobody anymore. Mm-hmm. My identity was gone. And then I think some other things that you know would be normal 
for real sadness and struggle are different things that someone might have to face, like um, like an injury and their mobility is impacted or they're experiencing some pain. And maybe if you're injured and you're younger and you were involved with sports, right? Yeah. Like the removal of things that were very important to your, your health, your well-being, your sense of purpose, a loss of a job. You know, it's not just about not succeeding in a job, but how about like facing the loss of a job? Yeah. Um, you know, close people to you either leaving, you know, moving somewhere else and then you know, you, your, your friend group isn't the same. Obviously you talked about relationship endings, so like divorces, but you could actually be in relationships that also are like not loving, not fulfilling. Something happens with your children. And so we're talking about the emotional reactions to those things occurring, correct? Mm -hmm. And then do some individuals have a predisposition of experiencing those emotions more intensely than others? Yeah, absolutely. Um, even, you know, it's speaking back of like Aristotle and Hippocrates, they would talk about the varying ranges of, of temperament, you know, that exist. And so, you know, today with the modern research and science that we know about those who are vulnerable to depression, we know that there are temperamental factors that are uh, involved. Artists, for example, or people who mm -hmm. feel their emotions more intensely and might also be well connected to the pain of living tend to have higher rates of uh, depressive conditions. You learned based off of that experience of dealing with somebody that the, the nuances exist and understanding those nuances and spending time with somebody gave you the perspective that you needed to come to that conclusion. So uh, how, how do we relate that experience to our everyday life, I guess is the question I'm asking. Yeah, how do you begin to normalize the pain of living but yet still be able to identify when something deviates so much from the norm mm -hmm. that um, without any intervention or professional assistance, that person could really struggle to the point where you would be concerned about their own well-being in life, right? We are talking about the enormous rates in suicide that have recently happened. But I want to go back a little bit further and like, how do we go from having what is traditionally what's called an episodic condition, right? So I believe it is quite normal in the course of a lifetime to go through an episode of depression as it meets the current criteria. But if we go back to like the historical aspect of this, the, um, the melancholy, melancholia was like afflictions that are like based on context and nature but these severe conditions outside of it were contrary to nature. So they would almost say like there's, there would be no understandable reason why this person might be in this severe mental. When you say like catatonic state. So right. we wouldn't label that as being depressed or melancholia. Nowadays, we would call that something else. It exists. It's just, it's just so rare is my point. Yeah. So like these afflictions have always been part of the human experience without us having a great knowledge of it, right? We still don't really know all the factors that would lead to someone to get to that severe of an episode, that where you'd be catatonic, where you'd be delusional, right? 
My point is that when we talk about how depression is discussed in modern times, we've lost sight of what actual severe depression looks like throughout human history. Right. Almost everybody that comes into an outpatient center reaches this, this is provided this diagnosis of either moderate or severe major depressive disorder. So we've what we've done is we've created these categories and these labels that take in normal human experiences and we pathologize it as a disease state. And that large catch-all category of diagnoses, which is part of the human experience, is now for the first time in human history labeled as a disease state which changes the way we actually think about it. Mm -hmm. So all the things we talked about, about the levels of sadness, which absolutely could lead to hopelessness, negative beliefs about yourself, the world, a loneliness, a despair, difficulty getting out of bed, difficulty functioning. But what we, but the majority, the overwhelming majority are associated with what we would call problems in living, right? Setbacks in life. Loss, rejection, loss of job, loneliness, negative self-worth. When previously that would not be viewed or how someone reacts in that situation would be more accepted as, prom, as, as parts of living. And Sean, you bring up a good point. Is it much easier to get depressed now because of the comforts of living when in the past you actually didn't even, you didn't have the ability or the time because it was survival? At that point, and so you're not stuck in your head, stuck in bed, um, you know, grieving for extended long periods of time, uh, falling into a deeper and darker depression because your life wouldn't allow it. You had to either take care of children or your farm or whatever, or be part of, connected to your community in some way. These are like interesting questions to try to distinguish between depression as a modern, you know, epidemic based on a lot of things that are part of modern society versus what is like natural and understandable over a lifespan in which we can effectively react to and respond to. It's a good point because you have so much more time to yourself to think so much more safe time to yourself to think. And one of the things that you talk, you people talk about that have been isolated um, even as punishment say it's, it's hell and it's hell because you're isolated with only your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. So very interesting point indeed. But again, let's talk, if we, if we talk about things just in terms of like percentage, these are rare conditions. And fellas, right now, depression is not a rare condition. Yeah. Even like the identification of severe depression, um, I believe has been purposely manipulated by the Pharmaceutical Psychiatric Alliance in order to uh, increase the sale of pharmaceuticals. Well, our, our culture has adopted a medical model, especially uh, the the American culture. And I've been thinking a lot about the DSM and how things are categorized. And I understand more now in the last six months, having worked here at your center to understand health insurance and categorization and how everything needs to be put into a category so that that medical model of you have paid for your health insurance in order for you to receive care or be reimbursed for your medical expenses, there needs to be some type of code that's put in. And to me, 
because we're a medical, our medical model has been adopted here as our culture. When someone experiences a short period of something, the immediate action would be to go see your doctor because you're already paying for it. You know, I have the American Psychiatric Association uh, website up. Um, you want to know how they describe depression? You know, I'll read this to you and just so. So this is the, yeah, I, actually, this is a, a great way we could have started. Like, what is the definition of depression? Yeah, and, and I think it's a, it's a false kind of pseudoscientific construct. So we might talk about uh about depression being what's called biopsychosocial, you know, so like there's biological, maybe temperamental genetic components to it, but then there's like psychological, like coping aspects, there's environmental social reactions. So it's like this complex condition that we don't really, you know, understand fully, but know it's part of living, but that's not how it's communicated in popular culture. And that's not even how it's treated. So here's the, the, the diagnosis or how it's described from the American Psychiatric Association, depression, otherwise known as major depressive disorder, is a common and serious medical illness that negatively affects how you feel, the way you think, and how you act. Fortunately, it is also treatable. Depression causes feelings of sadness and or loss of interest in activities you once enjoyed, it can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems and can decrease your ability to function at work and at home. Depression symptoms can vary from mild to severe, and they can include feeling sad or having a depressed mood, loss of interest or pleasure in activities you once enjoyed, changes in appetite, weight loss, or gain unrelated to dieting, trouble sleeping or sleeping too much. This is going through their PHQ-9 questionnaire that you asked me well, this sounds like the commercial that we watched it sounds oh like identical to that. well let me go th- let me go through all the symptoms and then let you guys just kind of share what your initial impressions are right um increase in uh purposeless physical activity or slowed movements or speech feeling worthless or guilty difficulty thinking concentrating or making decisions thoughts of death or suicide the symptoms must last at least two weeks and represent a change in your previous level of functioning for a diagnosis of depression. It applies to all. It can't, it's so broad. It applies to all. It can, it's so broad. It can apply to any given time. What would be the difference between something mild, moderate, and severe? So someone's interpretation. Very subjective. Yeah. And so if, if if a person was uh, not sleeping well for two weeks, there you go. You, You might have severe depression. Oh, by the way, you're not eating well for the, you know two weeks. By the way, you might have severe depression. I mean, I I'm, I mean, I'm not shocked. I think the whole premise of this would be if we go back to what you just said about pharmaceuticals and quick, easy, fast solutions with medication would be to make this condition a chronic condition versus, you know, pointing out the fact that people can have episodes where they have two weeks of feeling down because something happened in their life. They want to almost create a chronic condition. Yeah, so they have to describe it as a, as a medical illness that without treatment will just worsen. And what is really interesting by like looking at the history and of the research is most of these conditions resolve without any formal treatment. What is formal treatment? Seeing a doctor about it or going, to, uh, going into the psychotherapy world. 
the they're they're going to resolve themselves at, on their own mm-hmm. um on their own also meaning probably like connection to people who love you purpose in your life or just circumstances change so it's like so important to know that for a lot of people if you're just going to have a time frame of 2 weeks it's not long enough right that within a 6 month period of time most of these things are going to resolve on their own which like we know about the problems with the clinical trials related to antidepressants because they were only six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. So we know like if you want to identify somebody who's only, you know, been in that state for a couple of weeks, there's a percentage of them that are going to resolve that condition on their own without any intervention. Is is there a false cause fallacy going on in the psychological, in this industry? I mean, correlation and causation. Are they used, are they using a false cause fallacy? Well, I wanted to get into this in our in a podcast because when it comes to like treating anything, like so if if we're going to put these in the context of like symptoms, aren't they then symptoms without an identified cause? Right. Like you could be you could have fatigue for something that has nothing to do with depression, right? Mhm. You could have um mood problems that are related to some other mm-hmm. cause. You can um have trouble sleeping. You can have um feeling of worthlessness or, or feel guilty based on something that really, you know, would deserve that kind of reaction. Yeah. Um, you can have difficulty concentrating or making decisions for things that have nothing to do with a disease of depression. So this is what I've been finding most interesting over the last couple months, um, with the like dialectical behavioral therapy and the way that that's a approach there's a problem solving component and in the business world when you want to i when you identify an issue that you want to work on a tactic to overcome that question it's called why 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 so you keep asking the question why 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 to get to the root cause of what the problem is so that you don't start going down a path of trying to solve the wrong problem like you want to understand where it's really coming from and then you come up with a tactic to solve that. That existed historically when it comes to depression, connecting it to a root cause, whereas now there's no time being put towards identifying those whys. Well, right? So, yeah, so let's I'm going to go and read more about this this website from the, from the American Psychiatric Association. Um, this one is like, what are the risk factors for depression? And they say depression can affect anyone, even a person who appears to live in a relatively ideal circumstances. <laughs> Several factors can play a role in depression. The first one they list, biochemistry. Differences in certain chemicals in the brain may contribute to symptoms of depression. So remember, we've talked about the chemical imbalance lie. Episode number one. Episode number one. And you can date, you can go back to the late 1990s when um, this has been like widely disavowed from the medical community, but you still can go to the web website and you can still have them be able to state that it's possible that certain brain chemicals may contribute to the symptoms of depression because it's still justifying that intervention, even though we have zero medical evidence that would suggest it next genetics okay 
So the top two things here are there things that are outside of your control. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful in how they want to communicate to you, right? So how you are feeling has nothing to do with anything about what we talked earlier about the problems in living. And in no way is it something that's functional and potentially adaptive or like that young girl um, I talked about who was 14 would describe it as something that is very much connected to how she sees the world and what she's in touch with. It's not. It's a, it's a biochemistry problem or it's a genetic. So it says depression can run in families. For example, if one identical twin has depression, the other has a 70% chance of having the illness sometime in their life, which completely ignores the fact that they grew up in the same family together, right? So like, like how, we might not be able to say that's, that's genetics, right? It might be, you know, that, that necessarily like a lot of things within that family or that community, uh, socioeconomic status, like a lot of like factors could be related to that. Um, personality is listed on here and personal and environmental factors. So personality, people with low self-esteem who are easily overwhelmed by stress or who are generally pessimistic appear to be more likely to, to experience depression and an environmental factors, continued exposure to violence, neglect, abuse, or poverty may make some people more vulnerable to depression, which is absolutely true. And could there are there genetic components to it? Without a doubt, right? Like those changes in temperament or those differences in temperament certainly, you know, predispose somebody to those, to those experiences. But when you list your top two to be something that's medically related outside of your control, and then you say something um, like the treatments, um, 80 to 90% of people with depression eventually respond well to treatment. Almost all patients gain some relief from their symptoms. Again, it's kind of, um, it's this reductionist idea that like the concept of depression is related to specific symptoms and the reduction of them means like you've overcome the condition. Why is that still on their website with the chemicals? It's a really good question, right? Um, again, it's, it's pseudoscience. It's a lie. But when the primary mode of treatment for modern psychiatry is still the prescriptions that were developed throughout the 90s and in the 2000s, until you've been able to evolve your medical specialty and been able to, to individualize yourself beyond the pharmaceutical industry, which they haven't. They're an arm of the pharmaceutical industry. They are connected with each other. So without the pharmaceutical industry, there is no psychiatry. And without psychiatry, I don't know if the pharmaceutical industry in the mental health world would still be, you know, as large as what it is. We know it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So they're interconnected. And so that's our, that's part of our discussion within our various podcasts is be able to separate what is actual science from um, what is related to the financial aspects of like big business. Mm-hmm. Is this why you have 15 minute interviews and diagnoses. I mean, I'm trying, I'm being very honest because I feel that when I went in um, and I was diagnosed that quickly, the treat, it was treatable by medication, right? I mean, I had, I'd left there with several prescriptions. Um, Obviously, you know the story, I won't repeat it. I feel that this is something that should really shock everyone and should be questioned more than it maybe is. And it shouldn't be, 
looked at as something where, oh, you guys are, you know, what are you bringing this up? And I think people really need to look into this because if it's 15 minutes, what if it were the opposite? What if we were saying, well, here, here's the deal. We may diagnose you with severe depression, but it's going to take a couple more weeks and we want to observe and we want you to, you know, document. And then we're going to, we're going to have a better idea of what's causing it. How can you treat something if you don't know exactly what's causing it? That's a good question. Um, Here we are. It's, I think the conclusion that, you know, that can be drawn is that the current construct of depression is a modern invention that was influenced by the pharmaceutical industry to create more people to be customers for this, for the antidepressant. And the 15 minute clinical interview is just that consequence of the overwhelming marketing of multiple decades and into primary care that clearly identifies depression to be related to certain deficits in neurochemicals and being able to take these drugs are going to like at the very least be able to target those symptoms. Like if you take it, like all of a sudden you're going to feel less hopeless, less agitated, less sad. Um, It's going to improve your fatigue, right? It's almost like here, this is going to help with your physical symptoms And then if you go into a good therapy and then be able to kind of address the root cause or the problems, you combine them together and then you'll see improvement, which has absolutely not played out. That's, that would be an integrated approach, which most people don't have access to. There's, well, there's just not enough effective treatment providers, you know, therapists and and so forth. And and I, I still believe that most people don't understand what therapy is. I mean, we spoke about it early on, psychiatry, psychology. I believe they just, most people lump that into therapy and they think the medical model is the only approach. Yeah. So I I guess like one of the questions I, I think about, is there too many people seeking out mental health treatment? Right? Like if, if there's, if there's, Aspects of emotional struggle and emotional pain that could create criteria for what would be identified as a depressive disorder. Is the system overwhelmed where the people who really need the help aren't getting the help that they need because the general population has been, you know, brought into the system and this entire like concept of like decreasing stigma is really only about trying to increase the amount of customers that to actually begin to address the mental health crisis would be to more, more or less address it on a, on a family level, um, greater society in our educational systems. Like, is there a way that we can actually teach in our homes with our ki- kids or in our school systems about what it actually means to be human and what effective coping actually is like that's my dream is to be able to think about things like that so if you just if you just focused on terms like sadness loss you know there's this temporary nature to it but when you throw in the word depressed it's and it's associated with the word illness Mm -hmm. it's like this person is sick and when you're sick you can be sick for a really long period of time because there's something sick with your brain right? You're mentally ill. It's a brain related illness. This person is different than everyone else. There is a, 
uh, disorder of brain chemicals. You know, there's a there's this insinuation like that this person needs specialized medical intervention, yeah. and it does alter the way that we view our experience. So when we start talking about like what does it actually mean to be human and what is effective coping, when I mentioned like that acceptance based movement in psychotherapy, that normalization and validation of the experience is really important for parents and educators to communicate. Like just sometimes saying, yeah, that makes sense given what you've been through. And that's some of the power of just psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Somebody comes in and they start initially talking about how they're feeling and you evolve into everything that's going on in their life and you just validate that experience. Then that person begins to feel better because they're understood. Yeah, It decreases the judgment of it. And ultimately, it leads to, well, what can I do about it? Yeah. So my question to our listening audience and to the two of you guys today, can depression be adaptive? Can it be something that's really functional and necessary for us in order to, to achieve the things we want to achieve and get to the, See, the life we want to You're live? using that word depression also mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I brought up the question yesterday when we were talking that I wonder if I was ever depressed. During a, a period of time, I had ended a relationship. I had, uh, we, we lost our father. So I was uh, heartbroken. I was grieving. My career, I was not making enough money to pay my bills living in a city. So I was dissatisfied with that and I didn't know where my future was was going to end up. All those four things happened at the same time and I think someone if, could have easily said, "Well, Sean, you're depressed." Well, it all, you know, the interesting thing about the field of mental health is it's actually going to depend on how you communicate it. So let's say all those things are happening, Sean. Yep. And you come into an office and you speak to a doctor and you say, "I just feel this way for no reason." which is quite typical. I'm going to tell you it is quite typical. Or if you Mm. only have 15 minutes, you don't have enough time to really get into the the details. Then that's how it's communicated. That's how it's understood. That's how it's labeled. And that's how it's treated. But if you come into, say, my office and you come to a center like us and we examine it, you know, you might put on this, like this, another label called adjustment disorder, right? You're adjusting to these things that are occurring in your life. But it's almost completely um, related to how you describe it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of people who might be prone to depression who just self-invalidate or came from invalidating environments. So anything that they were feeling at any given time in their life, they might have been like criticized for or punished for, right? You're just being lazy. You know, you got to work harder. What are you crying about? Mm-hmm. You know? Don't be such a don't be such a whiner's people, you know, starving in Africa, you know, whatever it may be. So you learn that what you're feeling um, is not really valid. And therefore, when you go and you communicate to the outside world, you expect to be kind of punished just like, you know, what has happened in your life growing up and maybe what goes on in your own head. So those people communicate different to healthcare providers, to mental health clinicians. And these are factors. And that's why that you can't really talk about this being a sound science when that's how you get information, right? There's no way that this is a legitimate science when it lacks 
enough time for empirical investigation in that way. And just creating these symptom checklists does not make it empirical. Um, obviously, we know how you know the biases that exist and how you frame the questions, but also how somebody um, you know self-reports, right? Yeah. And how like they can be prone to like denying their experience, and they can be prone to like over reporting or exaggerating symptoms Mm -hmm. based on like maybe their needs of that given time. Yeah. And I went to a chiropractor and I had a a pain in my back and you and I said that I think we're very similar that where somebody may go in there and said on a scale of one to 10, their pain is an eight. And I'm saying it's a two, right? It's the same pain level, but maybe I'm just, I'm more tolerant of it. And, and maybe that's, that's a good, maybe that has a bigger um, uh, connection to emotion as well, where during that period where I may have been struggling, I, I downplayed it and worked through it. So let me ask you, where, what are the origins of that? The, if I we're both the same and we grew up in the same environment, what were the origins of that? I, I struggled through my youth in lots of things, playing sports, overcoming them, um, being shy. I feel like I've gone through many things in my life that were temporary. And I don't you remember how it was communicated to you? If you had an injury, if you felt pain, if you had struggle, suck it up, (laughs) rub some dirt on it, get back out there. Like, yeah, that was, that was definitely a a component of us growing up. Right. I still don't know what an injury is, right? Because unless unless something's broken, right, <laughs> or torn, and you know you can't move, any other pain was, was told that you have to continue to play through it. That's a sports culture it is, that we yeah. grew up it in. It is, yeah. Right? So, like, if I can, I remember I, I got in a motorcycle accident in college and couldn't move my neck. Like, I swear, more than two inches. I was a defensive back. You know, I looked like Frankenstein out there playing. But I wouldn't get off the field because, you know, it's just my neck. So I had to play the position, you know, really injured and in a lot of pain. Was what, that the game you got the concussion? Maybe Probably. one of them. But, <laughs> but like that goes back, that just goes back to how you think about things influence it. Right? Yeah. And I know I did it to my son too with sports. I mean, he was, he pretty much tore his kneecap off. He wrestled the rest of practice, you know, mm-hmm. and it's until, you know, you wake up the next day and it's like, Really filled with fluid, filled yeah. fluid, and you take it to, and he's like, "Oh boy, your kneecap's kind of hanging here," <laughs> you wow. know. It's like, and but he was like taught, if I can still kind of walk on, even if I'm limping, I continue to kind of move through it. So this, they, this they, just happened in the World Series. It wasn't the one pitcher pitching with a broken leg. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So your point is well taken, right? The subjectivity of human pain, yeah, and the interpretation of our own experience matters. So how do you know? that what you feel is any different from what you feel, right? Like we don't, we can't see each other's emotional experiences. We can only see our reactions to it. So this is leading to my question. Knowing that if people we care about, people we love, we suspect they may be in a period where an intervention is required. How, at what point do you intervene? Yeah, it's a good question because I don't, I don't want us to like ignore that there's that there are serious depressive conditions that exist, yeah. right? Um, that are potentially life threatening, right? And to me, the the strength of depression is always, almost always, tied to the strength of hopelessness. 
And here, here's the difference from the 14-year-old girl that I spoke about earlier compared to maybe another person. If, the, if a person believes that they're a burden to others around them and they believe that their pain is intolerable and will last potentially forever, that is a high risk for suicide and severity of depression. Now, what are we comparing that to? The person who's like, like who, who might be really sad, might be isolating, um, but is in no ways talking about like any intention or desire to want to end their life and might still be going to work or might still be going to school. So you have to put it in perspective in impairment and functioning. Somebody who is demonstrating real impairment in their ability to do the things that are necessary that will eventually get them out of that episode. It's really important to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that's not doing schoolwork, not going to their job, saying like they can't deal with this anymore. They'd be better. You'd be better off without me. Um, there is a degree of like physical pain that's observed in their ability to speak, communicate. They might be experiencing psychotic symptoms, you know, delusions, hallucinations. Um, Obviously, like talking about how um, life might not be worth living, you have to be able to like understand things in context. And that's difficult to ask a family member or a friend to do, right? So it is always better to be able to intervene early. And if you hear anything from, from the messages that you and I, that we speak on this podcast, that doesn't mean just going like to see your doctor and get on a medicine. You know, that means taking the time for that person to talk and be understood uh, and to be evaluated. And an evaluation is not in 15 minutes because I am trained that if somebody is in a lot of emotional pain and suicide is starting to become an option, I know how to intervene to try to target that hopelessness and get that person continuing to engage with me over a period of time, even to try to receive some degree of commitment to try to do new things or to live for a while. And I think when you are under the supervision of somebody who's trained to work with somebody, then you as a family member or a loved one, you know, can be part, should be and can be part of that that process. So it's serious. But I think the overall message of this podcast today was what is happening, you know, in society that actually moves us like closer to more debilitating depression mm-hmm. that is at other times. One of them is how we discuss uh, the pain of living. We don't normalize it. We don't accept it. Um, we don't talk about coping and we don't have families and parents who can both model it and sit down and talk to their kids enough about, Hey, you'll get through this. You know, I've been through something like this before, you know, we can actually learn from it. You know, it's a shift in the way we think about it, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of other things about modern society that are leading this towards more of an epidemic of depression. Um, One of those are, Uh, you know, just the obesity crisis that exists. Mm -hmm. Um, That is understated. That once you are, you know, that heavy and 
experiencing health problems to that degree, it's almost impossible to feel good, right? So think about a lot of those symptoms that are identified in terms of like depression around like energy level and possibly sleep disturbance. How about your own self-image and your own value? What it feels like to be, phys- you know, physically to be you if you're overweight. You're talking about joint pain. Your mobility is, uh, is impaired. You know, a lot of things that lead to what is ultimately allows us to feel really good about ourselves and um, things that we've talked about in this podcast before around, around exercise, mm-hmm. you know, sun exposure, you know, engaging with others. You know, when you are, um, you know, generations in where like, um, you know, eating cookies for breakfast, you know, was a nutritional, you know, cookie crisp, cook, yeah, cookie crisp, right? Like, like if, like when the food industry kind of worked to develop that pyramid and the yeah. bottom of the pyramid was carbs, yeah. you know, for the most part. So here, you know, and that's on our cereal boxes, yep. you know, parents thought they, if they ate cookies, their kids ate cookies in the morning, you know, you know, that's a nutritional breakfast. You know, all these things are intertwined to like how somebody, you know, feels. So these new, we also know nutritional deficits um, impact mood and anxiety. So like magnesium deficiencies for one. Um, And a lot of other like from vitamin, you know, vitamin D deficiency or other specific uh, nutritional aspects. Like these are factors in how we feel physically and we don't talk about them, right? Like if you're not eating well and you're not moving well, there's no way you're going to be able to, to feel good. So those, yeah. those two things at the, at the top of it are like matter. Well, and this brings up the point that on national media and everything, again, no one's actually talking about that over and over and over. We don't have commercials that are saying, hey, by the way, you can take care of yourself. Here's, here's a little trick. Here's something you can do. Mm-hmm. It's always a solution in a pill form or, you know, fear of some fix. sort. Yeah, yeah, the quick fix. Um, so I want to br- um, bring up a question that I, I think if I were on the other end of this and listening to you and saying, okay, let's say I feel I'm um, going through, I, I feel depressed and let's say I, I've gained weight. I've, I just don't feel right. Um, I, I, I understand you, Dr. McFillin, but it's just too hard to, you know, I don't, I just don't think I can do that. I don't think I can wake up. I don't think I can go and exercise. What are things, practical things that we could say if there are friends and family that are going through that, that we could help them and encourage them because there are going to be a lot of people that are going to sit there and say, I can't do that. I just can't do that. Well, first of all, I want to point out this idea that I can't do something is part of the problem, right? right? That's, a, that's a belief system. And the cognitive aspect of the cognitive behavioral therapy that we work with is we're really attuned to how somebody thinks about their own situation. So there is a cycle of depression that exists and they influence each other. So this belief that nothing can change for me this belief that I can't do it certainly influences how you feel, how you feel influences your behavior, how your behave, how you behave kind of reinforce and strengthens what you believe. So ultimately, if you don't break that cycle, you're going to stay stuck in that cycle. And I'm a big believer in that you understand depression as a, as a coping response to stressors. Like it's, like we used that word before, like what precipitated it? Like nothing comes out of the blue. As much as like big pharma and the medical alliance want to talk about things as just like something with brain chemistry, everything has a cause. 
Now, we might not always be aware of the cause, and it's in all likelihood in combination with a lot of different factors, both psychological, environmental, and lifestyle. But let's understand those causes. How do you treat anything without understanding the factors that contribute to it? You're masking it. You're absolutely masking it. So, you know, it could be sleep and you need the sleep interventions. Could be a lot about your lifestyle. You know, you could be socially isolated. Things that are more prevalent now in 2021 than at other times. We are more isolated as a group of people. You know, we... Even though we're more connected, we are more isolated. Yeah, that role of social media. I was going to say that it allows us to stay at home a lot more and still connect. So, you know... It's not true connection, though, Correct. I think is what we're all learning. It's mm-hmm. a different connection. Yeah, yeah. So, Kelly, to your question, I, I, I think it's about how, how, how can you break those patterns? Um, you know, for the teens out there who, you know, spend a lot of time in their room and the parents might be concerned, you don't allow your kids to spend time up there hours at a time with, with social media. And you connect and do things as a family. And you have open communication. And you talk and you value the time that you have with them Maybe it's in a car, you know, driving to school in the morning or on a trip. And you talk about like some of the challenges that exist to be a teenager. And you can have those conversations because if you don't know what's going on in your child's life or your teen, your teen's life, you know, how can you begin to teach life lessons? You know, so we talked about a lot of different protective factors for teens in a previous podcast, but that, you know, that, that being connected involvement you know, really caring about like how they perform or the different things that they're doing in their life. Like these things are like, extremely meaningful because you have to have like meaningful activities. Even if I look back at the story of the 14 year old girl who was experiencing those emotions intensely, she still felt, she still found meaning and purpose in that experience. So I'm a big believer in your own experience to your own emotional struggle matters, right? If it doesn't serve you well, if there's nothing to be learned from it, if there's no growth, then you just see it as a symptom and you just see it as pain for no apparent reason. And you're obviously what's going to be your primary goal, escape from pain. And I know that that intention or viewing your experience as an escape from pain is, is just a recipe for drug abuse, right? Like the people who are turning to drugs and alcohol more frequently in response to emotional pain are the ones who believe that life is better to escape it. But what happens when you have greater acceptance for it? Well, you don't experience it the same way, right? So, Sean, you talked about, you know, your pain, uh, your shoulder pain is a two. Maybe someone else views it as an eight. Mm-hmm. That, maybe that's just based on your relationship to that pain. So if you're, if you're two is compared to somebody who lost an arm, right? Mm. Then you think about it differently. Yeah. And I often have to do that in in psychotherapy. Like there's times we're going to rate intensity of emotions and you'll go on a scale of like zero to 10. And they'll rate it as a nine or a 10. And it might be related to like, a, you know, a, a typical phase of life struggle. And then you have to work with them to like really understand what a 10 might actually be. So if this is a nine context, what would this be? Yeah. And sometimes that, you know, that 10 is something that's like horrific, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost unimaginable then. And they go, well, in that case, it's a five. Yeah. Right. So perspective really, perspective that's really right. matters. Yep. And I feel like we've lost that 
you know, you go to a doctor and then you're given this diagnosis of major depressive disorder and so many people fit into that larger category and they're all treated the same way with the, with these drugs. We've kind of lost that, that perspective. And that's concerning to me because that's a, that's a, that's a modern epidemic. That's a construction of this mm-hmm. um, that has altered the way that we think about the human experience. What is the wrong thing to say to anyone in anyone's life where they really are experiencing that those very rare, but those, those, uh, the hopelessness that you had said earlier and everything, what shouldn't I be saying to that individual? Yeah. You kill me with some of your questions because you tend to put it in terms of like right or wrong. Right. <laughs> and, uh, as if like, that's all that exists. So <laughs> see, see how he, he just, I, I mean, I, I hate thinking about it that way. So, um, but, if, the, it, but it, Hey, it, I'll, I'll speak. For for Kelly also, Kelly, can I speak for you? Please. I, I think we we all need as non psychologists some advice, and we make mistakes because we care, and sometimes by caring, we do the wrong thing. Yeah, I, I understand. Like there is a there is a saying in uh, in my field. It's called "It depends," <laughs> <laughs> and and when you just say like. Symptoms of depression, what is wrong? You know, what's the wrong thing to say? I've got no context, right? So most everything I'm communicating to all of you today. I've heard Roger say that word easily a thousand times in the last six months to me, I'm, asking questions. I'm it trying depends. To, and, but I'm trying to empathize with the audience. And actually, this was a question from my wife. She wants to know what is the wrong thing to say. That's why I brought yeah, it up. The wrong thing to say in what situation, right? Like that's... like. It, like that's a if problematic about, way. Like that brings us right back to what I believe are the problems of modern society. You said, Here, let me go into my pocket listen, and give you like these real quick, easy things to do. That's and then not what this is. Now I'm going to call you back out <laughs> because you can shout all you want to me, but I'm going to back, backtrack you. You actually just got done saying five minutes ago, I can replay it for you, is the one thing that you're worried about is communication. Mm-hmm. You said it. Mm-hmm. So I'm asking you a simple question. Maybe it doesn't have a simple answer. Maybe that's the problem. But I think it would be worth everyone's while to say, what shouldn't I say to somebody that comes up to me or I notice and they're close to me and they are, I'm, I become worried because now I'm seeing the hopelessness. What are things that I shouldn't be saying to, All right, to so, that person? Uh, yeah. To somebody who's describing that they're hopeless about their future? Correct. Okay. So the things that I would be most concerned about would be invalidating the experience. So what is an invalidating environment? That's when someone, um, you know, it can range, right? An invalidating environment can be something that's abusive and harmful, right? So um, like that shows a lack of even caring or, or understanding for that person's well-being at all Yeah. to just dismissing their emotional experience. I think I've been guilty of that in the past, dismissive of it. Yeah, I think we all can, we can all do yeah, that, yeah. you know? And Absolutely. So, so if, if you're a, if you're a listener, right? Like, and you have that open line of communication, like, what are you hopeless about? Like what happened? You can understand things in context. Like there's a way of validating emotion, but not validating the, re- the reaction to it. Right. Mm. You can understand like, oh, I can understand why you feel that way. And then you can be encouraged. You can encourage things on, on the other end. So, um, when we talk about hopelessness, I guess that's the belief that nothing's going to change. Right. Like the future is going to be just as bad as it is now. And I think what is so important 
when you're working with somebody who's in a low mood state is to be able to talk about the temporary nature of human pain. And if we can accept the temporary nature of human pain, we know that we're going to get through it. Um, and we can be okay with it. You know, that's part of resiliency, that you can do a lot while feeling sad. So we all have the benefit of, I'll, I'll, I'll use the word wisdom, because time, experience provided us that perspective, whereas somebody who's young, who is experiencing something for the first time, it's difficult to communicate that to them. Yeah, that's the value, right, of, um, of maturity. Mm. And, uh, you know, having family members, whether it's a parent or a grandparent who've been through that before, because you're shaping perspective. And we're in a very kind of like reactionary culture. Like this is the thing, one of the problems, Kelly, that I always had with, um, you know, the school system's response to so many things, because it felt like it was very alarmist. You know, you would, um, you know, you would go into a school and you'd, you'd have these like certain like parent teacher nights or you'd be communicating these things and it'd always be like, what are the signs and symptoms of this? When should you be aware of your, 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 your child is having like problems or concerns. And then you would realize like, well, so much of this is like falls within what is developmentally normal. And, um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to like, well, that's going to happen from time to time. It's always to like what degree and for what duration, you know, so you're going to have some of your kids like isolate in the room for a little bit. They're going to feel like rejected from their peers. They're going to struggle in this thing or that thing. And then the emotions that come with it are normal and expected. But unfortunately, like today, like that becomes a sign of something that's more serious. So there's much less tolerance for the normal experiences of what it means to be human. But if like if that's something that extends for extended period of time and you have to like see a primary shift in who your kid is, well, yeah, please take that seriously and, and understand it. I'd hate for parents to fall into um, you know, the space where they can't say the wrong thing. You know, they're they're fear driven and therefore they're pushing them off to a lot of other people in order to tell them what to do. Okay, so then I'm gonna bring up up you said that there's just not enough providers. That would be another thing that I'd want to say. So now I'm going to do the right thing and maybe I call, um, you know, I call the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health and I say, you know, that, that would be the right thing to do. We're there. And you say, you know, unfortunately, we have a, a wait list. That's a problem, right? I mean, that's, that's, that, you said it, I think, last podcast that, because I brought that question up. There's just not enough providers right now. There's not enough providers now based on the degree of the mental health crisis that we're in. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to open up the solutions. The solutions just shouldn't be a psychologist or a therapist or a physician. They need to be integrated into our popular culture. You know, we could do a lot of work that's preventative. And I said this earlier, if we did more of that preventative work and we were able to teach coping skills and there was more acceptance and we shifted from a pharmaceutically dominated culture of the medical model to more of communication about what is it, what it means to be human, we would decrease the prevalence rate of depression. If we accepted anxiety but talked about approach coping and exposure to the things that were anxiety provoking with the skills to overcome it, we would decrease the prevalence rate 
of anxiety conditions. If we stop sexualizing young women and their bodies with so much attention to it, we decrease the prevalence rate of, of eating disorders. And if parents become educated on these things and saw the value in struggle instead of trying to control their children's emotional experiences and prevent them from rejection or failure or struggle, but rather communicated as a normal process to growth, we would decrease the prevalence rate of these mental health conditions. So under the current, the current system and the way that we think about it in Western society, in American culture, it is insustainable, right? We're just going to say, see increases in suicide and depression until we all change. We have to move away from this medical model. We have to be able to teach coping. We have to build resiliency, Kelly. Sean, like these are the things that are necessary. It starts within our homes. It starts within our families. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.